Do take a seat. Give the group a moment as well to find their seats. Do have your Bibles back open. Uh, we have a good and gracious King who has spoken uh, to us. We're going to look at what he's got to say. Listen up sheets at the ready as well. Exodus chapter 1, open before us, and I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We just pray now, Lord, that we might be a listening people. Amen. Now, as we've uh, already seen this morning, the sign uh, that we find hanging over the book of Exodus is this one. Not because it's got anything to do with aeroplanes or going on holiday, but because the word Exodus actually comes from the Greek word meaning departure. We come across it first in chapter 1, verse 10, where Pharaoh speaks about God's people leaving or departing from Egypt. But it's not just a story of God's people moving from one place to another. It's a way more significant departure than that. You see, what we have before us is actually a story of salvation, of God in His grace who reaches down from heaven into the lives of his own people who are living in slavery in Egypt to take them out and to fulfill his promise to take his people to the land of promise. It is a story of salvation. But before we get caught up in the drama, uh, and it is indeed a drama that unfolds before us, it's probably worth just for a few moments pausing to get our bearings in terms of where we are in the Bible. To see and understand where the story of Exodus, this, this mass leaving of God's people from Egypt, where this fits within the bigger story of what God is doing. Or to put it another way, how do God's people end up in Egypt in the first place? That's where the story begins in Exodus, but how do they end up there in the first place? Well, to answer that question, we need to know a little bit about what's happened already in the book of Genesis. It has 50 chapters, but I'm going to try and summarize it for us uh, ever so quickly in just three words. The first of which is this, creation. Genesis is the story of how God made the world, of how all things came to be. It's the reason that you are alive today because of what we read in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's also a story of sin. A story of how this world has gone so badly wrong, of how Adam and Eve rejected God's good and loving rule, and of how that rebellion against God has continued through the generations. But thirdly, it's also a story of hope, of a gracious God who has made some really big promises to a guy called Abraham to one day put right to put right all that we have made wrong. And part of that promise was that Abraham would have loads and loads and loads of descendants. He'd become the father of a great nation through whom God would bless the world again. And as the story unfolds, God begins to fulfill those promises. I, Abraham, in the end, after a long old wait, does have a son called Isaac. Isaac, in turn, has a son called Jacob who gets renamed Israel. And Israel has 12 sons, one of whom is called Joseph, who was loved 
by his father, but hated by his brothers. And this is maybe where the story in Genesis gets a little bit more familiar. Because Joseph, out of jealousy from his brothers, was sold as a slave. And he ended up going down into Egypt. And for years he faced injustice and trouble and hardship until God elevated Joseph to the position of prime minister in Egypt. Second in charge to Pharaoh himself. He had a really prominent role in Egypt. And then years later, his now forgiven family come and join him there. And that's where we pick up the story. Look, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, in the original, there's actually a word and in there, linking this with what comes before. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. And the beginnings, as you can see in verse 5, are small, aren't they? The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. But as we're about to see, things are going to change in a very big way for God's people. And that brings us to the first of two headings this morning. As promised, we have a growing people. Have a look down at verse 6 and 7. Listen to the language. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. As time goes by, that first generation dies. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It's pretty clear, isn't it, what Moses is trying to tell us? God's people are growing. But the language that Moses uses is actually really interesting. Firstly, because he borrows language from creation, back from Genesis chapter 1. This is what we read in verse 28. Just after God made man and woman, same language, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. It's the same language we now find in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They increased in number and the land was filled with them. You see, Moses wants us to hear loud and clear that this is the God of creation, the almighty God who brought this world into being, who is causing his people to be fruitful. But secondly, Moses doesn't just use creation language he also uses covenant language language of promise have a look back at genesis 15 verse 5 this is god speaking to abram he took him outside and said look up at the sky count the stars if indeed you can count them then he said to him so shall your offspring be you see at this point in the story abram is still childless. God, if you remember, has promised that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, loads of children. But at this point, it doesn't look like it's going to happen because of circumstances. So what does God do? He reiterates the same promise. You can picture the scene, can't you? God says to Abraham, out, you come Abraham, and he wanders out of his tent, look up at the sky. No light pollution in those days as Abraham looks up and this black, as he looks up into the sky, it's filled with stars. And as his eyes become accustomed to the dark, it's like more and more and more stars seem to appear. And God says, count them if you can, Abraham. 
Abraham says, no chance. Can't count those. And God says, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And that is a promise from the one who made the stars. The God of creation and the God of covenant promise. And it's a promise now being fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1. Point being, God is a a promise-making, promise-keeping God, which is incredibly good news for us, isn't it? Because it means that we can take any promise in the Bible rightly understood and build our lives and our eternities upon it with absolute certainty that God is good to His Word. We've sung about it already this morning, haven't we? With our action song, Oh God, He always keeps His promises. What did He promise? He said the sons of Abraham would be more than the grains of sand. More than the stars in the sky, more than the grains of sand on the shore. And so what happened? Well, in line with God's promise, his family grew underneath the Pharaoh's rule in Egypt. Because God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. But of course, he doesn't just make promises to his people then. He also makes promises to his people today. And we sung about that in in the last verse of that same song. God, He always keeps His promises. What, is, what promises has He made? He said His Son would set us free through His death at Calvary. He suffered in our place and then He rose up from the grave. God promised that He would set His people free from sin. From the penalty of sin that hangs over us. From the power of sin that gripped our hearts. And one day, from the presence of sin altogether when we spend eternity with Him. And He did it by sending His own Son to die at Calvary. To deal with sin fully and finally in the body of His own Son at the cross. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And that's the first thing we see in Exodus chapter 1. We see God's people growing in line with God's promise. But the second thing we see, not just a growing people, but a growing problem. Can you see that down in verse 8 to 10? Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave. Exodus the country. You see, God's people have become incredibly numerous. But at the same time, the people of Egypt have become increasingly worried. And then one day in verse 8, we learn that a new dynasty begins. A new Pharaoh comes to power to whom Joseph meant nothing. This guy couldn't care less about the past. He couldn't care less about what Joseph did to save Egypt from the drought they were in. He wasn't bothered about the history. wasn't bothered about the past. His concern was the present. And as you can see, he's getting a little bit fidgety. He's worried about the growing presence and as he sees it, the potential threat of God's people which is why he puts plan A into action. You see it in verse 11. So, 
They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Again, in verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. This was a brutal regime, but its very heart was opposed to God. And I want us to see that by focusing in on just two words that we find in verse 14. Firstly, the word bitter. Can you see it there? They made their lives bitter. It's a word that comes up again in Exodus chapter 12 when God institutes the Passover meal to remember these events. He instructs them to eat bitter herbs as a reminder of how terrible and bitter their experience was as slaves in Egypt. You see, they were meant to remember. God's people were meant to remember just how desperate, how hopeless almost this situation was. God wants his people to remember the desperate plight that he saved them from. And of course, our desperate plight isn't physical slavery, it's sin. And we'll come to the Lord's table later. God wants us to remember what he's done to deliver us from our terrible plight. Firstly, the word bitter. Secondly, the word brick. Takes us back to Genesis chapter 11. See there the picture on the screen, the Tower of Babel, that that monument of sinful pride set up by man in opposition to God. A tower, as we read, not built with stones as the temple was, but with bricks, man-made bricks. Which is why building with bricks throughout the Bible is a symbol of worldly opposition to God. And so it is here in Exodus chapter 1. We have an arrogant king who is seeking to build his own wicked and worldly kingdom in opposition to God. And if that meant crushing God's people in the process, then that's fine. But despite Pharaoh's best efforts, as we know, it's a plan that was doomed to failure because Pharaoh is coming up against God. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more Pharaoh seeks to establish his own kingdom, the more God actually grows his. Which again should come as a huge encouragement, shouldn't it? Because whatever the kingdoms of this world are seeking to do, whatever the different governments of this world are active doing, laws implementing to to squeeze the life out of the local church, God's word will continue to spread and God's church will continue to grow. As the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 16, I will, it's there again twice, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Nothing can stop God from growing his people then. And nothing can stop Jesus from growing his church today. I've actually rewritten the words of uh, one of my favorite songs in Christ alone. The last verse goes like this, no power of hell No scheme of man, no scheme of Pharaoh, can ever pluck his people from his hand. Which is good and wonderful words of assurance and truth. But you could also say this, no power of hell, no scheme of man, can stop our God fulfilling his plan. That's the story of Exodus. Nothing can prevent our God from doing what he has promised to do. Yet... 
Such is the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't stop him from trying, does it? Plan A didn't work, and so Pharaoh puts into place plan B. Verse 15, things get more serious for God's people. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. Kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And so we move from slavery to mass murder. The labor camps weren't working, so Pharaoh instead turns to a policy of genocide to wipe out every baby boy that was born to the people of Israel, which left these two Hebrew midwives and maybe others as well with a huge ethical dilemma. You see, Pharaoh was an incredibly powerful man. He actually presented himself to his people as a god. Therefore, to snub the command of Pharaoh was a really big deal. But that's exactly what these midwives did. Verse 17, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And that's why their names are written down and recorded for us in history. Shifra and Pua are heroes of faith. It's interesting, isn't it? In contrast, we don't even get to know the name of Pharaoh. We're not told. He's nameless. We don't even know which Pharaoh it was. Yet the names of these two women, whose job it was at that time to help women give birth, will be remembered. And they are held up before us as examples to follow these fearless women of faith who could so easily have caved in to the pressure and done what was wrong. But instead, they feared God. They stood firm and they did what was right. And we too should follow in their footsteps, fearless in our faith. You see, there'll be plenty of times in life when we're pressured into doing something that goes against the good intentions of our God. Either by gentle coercion or by strong, maybe even government command. Who knows? And in those moments, the antidote to failing God and caving in is fearing God. It is to stand before our God with a right view of His glory, His power, His majesty, and His grace. As the prophet Jeremiah says, another wonderful promise, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me. Why? So that they will never turn away from me. You see, to fear the Lord is to stand in awe of the one who made you and the one who saved you. And that's why the aim of this book in many ways is to grow in our knowledge of God. Do you remember that little phrase that I introduced you to at the beginning? That you may know the Lord. It'll come up again and again and again as we journey through these early chapters because to know the Lord is to fear the Lord and to fear the Lord is to follow the Lord with all of your heart, soul, strength and mind. As Spurgeon once said, he who fears God 
has nothing else to fear. A right view of God and there is nothing in this world that should cause us to fear because God is God and he's got it all in hand. Heroes of faith before us in Exodus chapter 1 and we have so much to learn from them. And just an added encouragement, isn't it good? After 400 years of oppression and slavery in which at times no doubt God felt very absent from his people. Faith in the one true living God is alive and well. And so it is in his church today. Plan A didn't work for Pharaoh. Plan B didn't work for Pharaoh. And so lastly, he turns to plan C, which is actually very much like plan B. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. As you can see, the aim is the same. The aim is to stop God's people growing by killing all the baby boys. But the means is different, isn't it? No longer is this a secret policy almost carried out behind closed doors by just a few. Now we have a public policy which is to be carried out by all the Egyptian people. And it's here I think that we find another junction to Jesus. Because as it was in Pharaoh's day, so it was in Herod's day when the Lord Jesus was born. Both Herod and Pharaoh, in reaction to what God was doing, working out his promises, they both gave the same command to kill all the baby boys. But in both those contexts, God protected and God raised up a deliverer. Moses in Exodus chapter 2, as we'll see next week, and of course the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 2. Point being, whatever the kingdoms of this world seek to do in order to extinguish the flame of the gospel, by whatever means necessary, they will fail. Because the more people seek to snuff out the light and the life of the gospel in his people, the more brightly it will burn. And we finish with this quote, the world is actively trying to quench the light to prevent it from shining anywhere. It was happening in Exodus. It's happened throughout the generations. It happened when the Lord Jesus was born. And it's still happening today. People are seeking to squash out the light of the gospel. But I have news for them. The light that has shone brightly from eternity past. The light that gleamed in Bethlehem's manger. The light that shone for 33 years while Jesus walked on earth. The light that flickered briefly at Calvary but blazed forth from the empty tomb, will continue to light the pathway towards eternity for all those who desire to follow him. Whatever the world may seek to do, God will deliver on his promises and he will grow his church. As the Apostle John says, chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Here's another promise, and there's lots of them in God's word. And the darkness has not overcome it. And it never will. When you take a moment just to think upon the promises of God, maybe the promises that he makes in the book of Exodus, maybe other promises that are precious to you, just take a moment to be still. Remember God, fear him, know him, love him, and walk in light of his promises as we leave here.